You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome you back to your seats. Grab some last coffee and pastries. On your way back to your seats, if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. That's what will be Ephesians 4. Verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. So Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2. And if you're using one of our hardback black Bibles there in the back, you're on page 978. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that home with you. And uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word that you can use. The words will also appear on the screen behind me. Today's passage is going to connect our conduct as Christians with our faith in Jesus. And Paul, he's going to use the language of getting dressed. So imagine that getting dressed language to take off certain things and to put on other things. And today we're going to see what it means to get dressed like someone who follows Jesus. And so if you've ever wondered how faith and works are meant to go together and how they connect with each other, then today's passage is going to help make that a little bit more clear for all of us. And so hopefully you've opened your Bible to Ephesians 4, verse 17. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able, and I'll, I'll read it and you can follow along. Ephesians 4, 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion." that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children." And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave, him up, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. And here now, again, we come to open it as we gather as a church and we ask for your help. 
God, by your spirit, we want to hear what you have for us in your word. God, I pray that we would hear your words and we would understand what you want for us. So help us, we ask by your spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Did any of you ever have a job where you had to wear a uniform as part of your job? I did. My first job ever, or one of my first jobs at Jubilee Foods, the grocery store in my hometown, khaki pants with a blue polo shirt, was the uniform. And perhaps the most iconic uniform of any retail store out there is the Target khaki pants with the red shirt that we're all familiar with. It has become so iconic that if you see someone with khaki pants and a red shirt, you just assume they're either going to a shift at Target or coming from one. And if you want a good laugh, you could Google people who uh, went to Target in khaki and red but were not working and realize what a mistake that is. One person actually tweeted, note to self, do not go to Target while wearing tan pants and a red shirt. I just had a lady ask me to speak to my manager because I didn't know where the baby food was. The Target uniform has successfully done what few other retailers have been able to do. You see the, you see the uniform and you just identify the store. And when you're in the store as a guest, you know where to find help. You just look for the red. And today we're going to be talking about a uniform, but not so much, not not so much, not at all, a uniform of clothes, but a uniform of someone who follows Jesus. This doesn't come in the clothes we put on. It's not a physical uniform expressed in red and khaki. This is a spiritual uniform, which is expressed primarily in our conduct, and especially in our conduct toward one another. Paul uses the language of getting dressed, to put off the old self and to put on the new. And so the message of the sermon today is this, wearing the uniform of the kingdom requires us to take off the old self and put on the new. This is part of the rhythm of following Jesus, of walking in the kingdom, is taking off the old, putting on the new. And one of the primary ways that we put on the new self is to live with the characteristics of Christ, to express his love in the world. And our outline today is threefold. First, we put on our new identity. Second, put on our new behaviors. And then third, put on, excuse me, our new motivation. So first, put on your new identity. If we are in Christ, then we have a new identity that is part of what's true of us now if we are in Christ. Something that we're going to continue to repeat over the course of the rest of this series, is that the instruction Paul gives in chapters 4 through 6, which is where we are now, we're in the instruction section of the book of Ephesians, it is grounded in and flows from the identity that he gave us and reminded us about, made very clear to us in chapters 1 through 3, which is why he tells the Ephesians in verse 24 to put on the new self. If we are new people, made new, then we should clothe ourselves in the conduct that is consistent with our new selves. Part of wearing the uniform of the kingdom is also taking off our old self. In verse 22, Paul says this, the old self is corrupt. It is motivated by deceitful desires, but that is not who you are anymore. That is not who we are. We should not wear that uniform any longer. And Paul here, and the way he describes that life in verse 22, he's picking up on some of the language from Ephesians chapter 2, where he talked about the fact that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and then he uses some similar language. We lived in the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body. 
And those deceitful desires that Paul is talking about in chapter 2 are expressed then here in verse 22 of our passage. This is the old self. We're dead to that. That's no longer who we are. God made you alive. You're a new person. So clothe yourself in conduct that is consistent with your new identity. And if you look with me at verses 19, or 17 through 19, we'll see Paul describe this former way of life a little bit more. Do not walk as the Gentiles do, he says. And this is not an insult to all those who are non-Jews, which is commonly the way that the word Gentile gets used. Here he's referencing Gentile as a way of just describing anyone who has rejected God and not believed. And this is how they live. They are futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, ignorant, hard-hearted, calloused, giving themselves to sensuality, excited to chase these behaviors of impurity. They do not act in love. In fact, it is the opposite of love that defines their conduct. And just as their deadness and their impurity comes from their ignorance and from their lack of understanding, um, our new uniform in Christ, this new life we have, comes from our vision of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Our understanding of who God is changes the way we live. This is the mystery that's revealed, as Paul has said several times, which is why Paul says in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming, Paul goes on, that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's emphasizing here that their understanding of Jesus informs the way that they live and the way that they see this play out. And so I even ask you, um, do you get who Jesus is? This is the question we're all confronted with today. Do we see Jesus for who he is? Paul's asking them, do you see Jesus? Because if we encounter the real Jesus, if our darkness is lifted and the mystery of Christ is revealed, then in receiving him, we are made new. We have a new way of living in the world. Paul here is attaching our conduct to our identity, and that's really important for us to understand because we've said this over and over again. When we talk about the gospel and what it is and what it is not, the gospel is not a set of rules that make bad people good. It is not good advice that make foolish people wise. The gospel is good news that makes dead people alive. It gives us a new identity. It's not just advice. So when we receive the gospel and have a new identity, it does begin to change us. You cannot be made alive through good conduct, but if you have been made alive through the good news, then it will change the way that we live. Now for a moment, I just want to take you all to seminary for a moment and define some terms for you, okay? What I've been talking about up to this point is this dynamic between these words, these theological terms known as justification and sanctification, You don't necessarily have to know these words. The concepts are really important. You don't have to know the words, but it's helpful too because you'll hear them referenced. You'll read them in books or you'll hear speakers talk about them. And justification is when we are made right before God. It's a courtroom word. We are guilty and we have been justified through Jesus. We are made right by his blood. It is an essential piece to the identity that Paul defined for us in chapters one through three. And sanctification now is the ongoing process of our lives becoming more like Christ in this lived reality, in the everyday stuff of life. If justification is our identity in Christ, then sanctification is the process of putting off the old self and putting on the new. 
If justification is being declared holy, then sanctification is the process of becoming holy in our lives. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, that God has perfected for all time, justification, those whom he is perfecting, sanctification. Paul sees these two aspects of our salvation as closely linked, and he'll intertwine them over and over again throughout his letters, and especially here in Ephesians. And so for us, we need to see that these two concepts are distinct, but that they can never be separated from one another. And where Paul uses the language of clothing here in Ephesians 4, putting off and putting on, Jesus uses the analogy of a tree in Luke chapter 6. When Jesus says that no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. And he goes on to say then that you can't get figs from a thorn bush or grapes from a bramble bush. And this concept revolutionized my understanding of how we pursue holiness in life, how we fight sin, how we put on love. In my own struggles with sin, especially as a college student, this radically changed the way that I began to confront my sin. I started to realize that there are layers to love and that conduct. There's also layers to our sin. And what we often see as just behavior is actually the fruit of something much deeper. And if we only address the fruit and only the behavior, we won't get very far. We must address the root. If you try to just change the fruit and never address the root, you are setting yourself up for a lot of pain and frustration. Think about it this way. Our family has a cherry tree in our backyard, and we love to get some cherries at the middle of summer when they come and come ripe and we make pies and whatever out of them. But imagine I went to that same tree looking for an orange, and I got mad at that tree because there's no orange there. Right? It wouldn't work very well. People would think I'm foolish for even trying to go get an orange from a cherry tree. And you might think, well, that's a pretty obvious observation, Jeremy. Like, thanks for the insight. This might have been what people thought about Jesus when he said, you can't get a fig from a thorn bush. Well, obviously you can't. However, he then applies it to our life and our conduct. And he says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks When we try to change the fruit without addressing the root, we're just as foolish as trying to get an orange from a cherry tree. When we try to change our uniform, but don't stop to address what team our hearts are playing for, we're not going to get very far. But this is what preachers mistakenly do all the time. I have been guilty of this. I will be guilty of it again, I am sure, to try and get oranges out of cherry trees. It's what parents do with their kids when they get frustrated sometimes, to try and change the fruit and neglect the roots. And it might work for a little while. If we yell at our kids to share enough, they might share when we're around. Not because their hearts have changed, but they just don't want to get yelled at anymore. And here's one of the ways that you can, though, get an orange from a cherry tree. Go to the store, buy an orange, hang it with some twine to a tree. The next day you go out and pluck an orange, right? But that doesn't work, right? You're not going to keep producing any fruit. When we try to change the fruit without addressing the root, it will be a fruitless endeavor. But that's not how you learned Christ. We have a new set of roots. So let's see how this fruit is meant to be produced. Here we put on our new behaviors. We come to point two. Once Paul establishes the framework, then he addresses five different behaviors that should change if we are new in Christ. 
And in each of these, what he's doing is he's replacing an old behavior with a new one. These are the two sides of sanctification we're talking about, the putting off of sin and the putting on of love. Both are essential in following Jesus. One is the removal of hate, of lying, the removal of bitterness, and a whole host of other behaviors that are opposed to the things of God. The other is our growth in things like love and honesty and forgiveness and purity. And if you think about it this way, in a yard, you not only need to kill the weeds if you want to have good grass, but you also have to grow grass. You have to do both. Last summer, my wife Megan and I declared war on all the creeping Charlie in our front yard. And when your yard is half purple, early summer, when the flowering creeping Charlie comes, you have to make a decision. Are we going to have an ode to Prince every summer, or are we going to do something about this? And so Megan was ready. She declared, well, our, I think our neighbors thought we were a little crazy at times. So Megan's out there pulling, creeping Charlie by hand, probably three times a week all summer. We got this uh, electric dethatching machine, and I dethatched our yard about four times over the summer. By the end, there wasn't any creeping Charlie left. However, there wasn't a ton of grass either. We had a lot of dirt and sand everywhere. So this spring, we bought grass seed. We put the grass seed down. We put down some fertilizer, and we're trying to grow grass. Because if you want to keep the creeping Charlie and weeds away, you also need to grow good grass. This is a good picture of our sanctification. We need to kill sin. We need to kill the weeds taking off the former way of thinking, off the former way of living that is opposed to the ways of Jesus, but we also need to grow in grace. We need to grow good grass. We need to put on the conduct of Christ and live in love. And in verses 25 through 32, Paul explains both sides of this equation as he goes through these behaviors. We've talked about this before. Sometimes in Paul's letters, we can get lost in all the different language and run on sentences that he uses. Verses 25 through 32, he goes through a lot of different areas of conduct, and you might get lost in it all. Well, there's primarily five behaviors, and he goes back and forth between our former way and then the way that we should replace it with the conduct of Christ. And I'm going to borrow some language from Tony Merida's commentary on Ephesians, and I'm going to go through these five fairly quickly, because I want you to see the dynamic of putting sin to death, putting on Christ. But just because I'm going through them quickly does not mean that we don't want to hear them and do some self-assessment if one of these areas, God's Spirit might be convicting us. And so here are the five. The first is to replace lying with truth-telling from verse 25. Therefore, Paul writes, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And here do you see those two sides of Paul's exhortation, put away falsehood and speak the truth. Paul appeals to the fact that we are members of one another, and the reality is that if we want to be good members of one another, care for each other, then truth-telling is part of that. It is good for the body, whether it is in the confession of sin or whether it is in confronting one another. Truth-telling is good for the body. The second we see is to replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger, verses 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger itself is not the problem. Sometimes we think it is. Anger itself is not the problem. It's what we do with our anger and why we feel angry and do we hold on to that anger. If we hold on to anger, it will fester, which is why he says, don't let the sun go down on it and we will give the devil opportunity to do damage. 
But if we love what God loves and hate what God hates, then sometimes anger will be expressed in holy ways. Second, replace stealing with hard work and contribution. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And this one's fairly straightforward. Honest work brings dignity to a person. Rather than steal and shame and embarrassment, it's better for someone to work and contribute. And you see, again, the two sides. Put stealing to death and put on the uniform of the kingdom, which is expressed in labor and in contribution. Fourth, replace corrupt talk with edifying talk, verses 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This might be a good verse for some of you to memorize, because what comes out of the threshold of our mouth is powerful. It brings life or death to a community. So put the corrupting talk to death, Paul says, and put on talk that builds up, that affirms, that encourages. The consequences of our words are significant. Words will build up and give grace to those who hear, or corrupt words will grieve God's spirit. And in reality, all these behaviors grieve God's spirit, but Paul connects it to this one in particular because of how powerful our words are. The fifth is to replace bitterness with kindness and forgiveness, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And there you see, that's what we're putting to death. Verse 32, what are we putting on? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness is like poison to the soul. If you find that in response to other sin and failure and imperfection, you demand punishment, extract payment, require vindication, then you will inevitably feed bitterness and anger and malice. And the reality is, what you're doing to others, you are probably doing to yourself as well. But that is not the way that we learned Christ. We can put that to death and put on kindness toward one another, tender-hearted toward others, ready to respond in compassion, forgiving one another, because that is how God has responded to us, in tender-hearted forgiveness. Sanctification is a combination of putting sin to death, taking off our old self, and putting on Christ, growing in grace. And I'll just ask you, where in your life is God calling you to put sin to death today? Maybe it's one of these five. Maybe it's another area that God's Spirit is convicting you. Where is He calling you to put sin to death? And also a a reminder, because sometimes we get so fixated on putting sin to death, and we forget the other half of this, to replace it with the conduct of Christ. So not just putting sin to death. Where's God's Spirit also calling you to put on the characteristics of the kingdom? The reality is that this can be hard in life. We know that's why we need each other. It's especially hard if we don't, do not understand how or why it is possible. And so we'll talk about the third point, to put on our new motivation. We can easily fall into behavior modification in this, trying to change the fruit without addressing the roots. 
Getting the relationship between roots and fruit is essential in this if we're going to have good motivation and endure in this because justification and sanctification, identity and behavior, they, uh, the right understanding that will fuel our fight against sin and our putting on of Christ. So let's look with it at the end of the passage here. We will see Paul connects the two. He sees our justification in Christ as our motivation for our sanctification. Ephesians 4, verses 32 through 5, 2 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And there I put it in yellow for a reason. As God in Christ forgave you. He's grounding our forgiveness in the forgiveness we've received in Christ. Moving on to chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And here again we see it's grounded in Christ. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul explained these five areas that we need to put sin to death and grow in grace, and then he circles back to remind us of our motivation. We forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ, not in order to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. And we put on love because Christ has loved us by giving himself up for us on the cross. We love not in order to be loved, but because we have been loved in Christ. We cannot divorce justification from sanctification. If we start to pursue growth in holiness without recognizing that we have been declared holy in Christ, then that will become, or that will become legalistic. We will feel burdened. We will always be trying to prove ourselves to God. And that is a significant problem for us in the long run. It is also a problem if we try to embrace sanctification without taking our, or sorry, if we try to embrace justification without taking our sanctification seriously. And that's what Paul is primarily addressing in our passage. If you claim to be part of the team, but refuse to wear the uniform, then that will result in what some have called cheap grace. When we treat the grace of God in Christ like a get out of jail free card, when we tell ourselves that I'm safe, so I can do whatever I want now, when we presume upon God's grace in this way, we make a mockery of Christ. It is inconsistent to say that God has forgiven me in Christ and I feel no responsibility to forgive you. It is inconsistent to say that we worship a God of justice who executed perfect justice on the cross and then to say that the injustice around me doesn't matter to me at all. The world around us will see these inconsistencies. They will call us hypocrites and they will call us fools and they will be right. Another consequence of divorcing our sanctification from our justification is discouragement. Sometimes it's cheap grace to presume upon that grace. Sometimes it's discouragement. If we do not believe that our new roots can produce new fruit, eventually we'll just want to give up. Someone recently shared with me about a friend who started to see all the barriers to growing in holiness, struggling to believe that they could actually become more like Jesus. And as this happened, they grew discouraged and frustrated and started to conclude that if I'm following Jesus and it can never actually lead to real change in life, then what's the point? And maybe you feel in that place this morning. You've seen the vision of a holy life in the scriptures, but over and over you fall short of that vision. And you resonate with what Paul wrote in Romans 7, doing the things that you do not want to do, unable to do the things that you do. If you listen to me, go through that list of behaviors earlier, and you started to think to yourself, I've tried to change. I want to change, but I'm ready to give up. 
that discouragement can become overwhelming. And if we do not internalize God's vision for us, that the grace we have in Christ will lead to real change in our lives, that the grace of justification is the same grace as in sanctification, that the power that saved us in Christ is the same power that will bring change to our lives, then it makes sense why we would eventually give up. But that is not the vision that the scriptures had for us. As Paul says in verse 20, that is not the way we learned Christ. One of the reasons we get discouraged or give up or don't try, or we do try but out of legalism and burden, is because we are not seeing Jesus clearly. It is because we're trying to change the fruit without addressing the root. And Paul writes, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming that that's true, then Paul goes on to say, do these things. Then Paul says to kill sin and put on Christ, believing that it is actually possible to change. But it begins with Jesus as he is, understanding the truth that is in Christ. We will only learn to forgive if we have received the forgiveness of Jesus, which is why Paul connects them in verse 32. We will only walk in love if we have known the love of Christ through his sacrifice, which is why Paul connects them in chapter five, verse two. If you want to grow in grace, then we must know Jesus for who he is and embrace the grace of God in Christ. Consider with me the words of Jesus in Luke chapter seven, when he says, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. It is the forgiveness of God in Christ that frees us to put on the love of Christ. Jesus said these words in the context of a meal at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And while he's there eating, this woman of the city comes in and she weeps on Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet with oil and then she cleans his feet with her hair. Meanwhile, Simon and all of his buddies, they're judging Jesus. They're judging this woman. She's a notorious sinner and they're wondering, does Jesus even know what's going on? And so Jesus turns to Simon and he tells him this little parable. And he talks about a money lender who had two debtors, one who owed a great deal of money, a lifetime worth of debt, the other who owed a little bit of money, a few months worth of labor. And this moneylender forgives both of their debts, and so Jesus turns to Simon and says, which one of them will love the moneylender more? And Simon correctly says, well, the one who has forgiven much debt. And so Jesus then takes that parable and he applies it to the situation before him. Simon, who was the host, offered Jesus none of the customary practices of hospitality at the time. It betrays the motivation he had in that moment. It betrayed the way that he saw the situation. He loved little because he did not know that he needed to be forgiven much. Meanwhile, the woman who came in played host. She washed Jesus' feet. She anointed his feet. She cleaned his feet with her hair. And Jesus turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. Her love was expressed in this care for Jesus' feet, and she loved much because she had received the radical grace and forgiveness of God. If we want to learn how to walk in love, to put to death what is earthly in us, and to put on Christ, it begins by seeing Jesus for who he is, experiencing his radical love, knowing his scandalous grace, and that will free us to live a life of love and forgiveness. We have already been given the uniform of the kingdom through the grace of God in Christ. 
Our work now is to daily be about the work of putting sin to death and growing in grace, of taking off the uniform of the old self and putting on Christ. And hear me, River City Church, this is possible. We can grow in grace because we have been given all the grace that we need through the love of Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.